All right, take your Bibles and turn to the book of Exodus, chapter 34. We're working through this text, and this is, this is why it's good to have a preaching strategy that forces you to deal with topics that maybe you wouldn't want to otherwise, because we're going to deal with a topic today that would be easy to say, let's just skip over that one, because uh, nobody's going to like that. That's not going to be a fun sermon to preach. Grace and compassion, yeah, we can preach that. This one, mm, I don't know, but when you have a preaching strategy that, that forces you to go through the words of Scripture, you end up talking about stuff that I believe God wants us to talk about, but we may not choose to do so on our own terms. So in the process of preparing this, I'm like, why haven't we talked about this sooner? This is so good. And I think you're going to be impressed about how valuable it is to know about this aspect of the character of God. So we're, the premise of this series is that your life is a reflection of your belief about the character of God. Your life, the choices you make, what you do, what you value, what you prioritize, how you raise your children, what types of values you try to instill in them is a reflection of what you truly believe about the big things, including God, the character of God, who is God. And so we've been exploring this throughout this series, and we're going to keep exploring it because it's so important. But the way we've been, the way we've been doing this is through Exodus chapter 34, verse 6, because this is God talking about God. He's the person you want to hear from. Who, what do you like, God? Well, let me tell you. Exodus 34, verse 6. This is the first place he does it in Scripture. So start uh, there in verse 6. And he, God, passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, Yahweh, Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God. Now, remember, that was a little poetic couplet we talked about last week. They almost always go together. Compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness and rebellion and sin. Ah, sounds good. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. It also sounds good for a lot of people. He punishes, now this is where it gets tricky. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Hmm, I don't know about that. Just this week, I was talking with uh, some, some friends of ours. They were talking about a childhood friend who just has had tremendous struggles in their life. Divorce, uh, drugs, um, suicide attempts. And this is a person who has a family and who has children. Do you think that their choices to get involved in that lifestyle or to try to take their own life or to have affairs, do you think that that's not impacted their children? Your sin impacts your children and your grandchildren and potentially your great-grandchildren. But the good news is, what if you were to start making choices now for people that don't even exist yet? What if you were to start implementing good in your life and wholeness and wellness in your life so that your grandkids and your great-grandkids would benefit from you? They may never know your name. They may never meet you, but you have benefited their life because of the choices you make. This is true. What God says here is true. The sins of, of the fathers are visited upon the children, whether we want that or not. That doesn't mean that the guilt of the sin is visited on them, but it means the consequences are. That's just true. There's no way around that. You cannot deny that's a reality in our world. When it says to the third and fourth generation, that word generation isn't in the Hebrew at all. They just threw that in there. The translators threw that in there because we like, they were like, I think that's what God's talking about. It means to the third and fourth, and there's no word there. It just ends, the third and fourth. The third and fourth is actually a Hebrew idiom, just talking about like some measure of time. And there's other places in scripture where God says, I will bless thousands of generations. But you know what? There is going to be sin that impacts the third and fourth generation. And one of the ways to think about this is that in, in these homes, you had grandpa, grandma, 
children, grandchildren, sometimes great-grandchildren. And so if a person were to introduce sin into the home, it affects three and four generations. I mean, you just, just, it's just logical the way that that works. But the thing that I want to talk about today is this is a character that we have about God. So the idea is, is that in the Old Testament, we have this God that is always smiting people and judgment and fire and brimstone and smoke and lightning. And that's the Old Testament God that we read about in the Hebrew Bible. And then, fortunately for us, we get to go to the New Testament and we get to forget about that angry God. And then we get to meet Jesus, who's kind of like Mr. Rogers, but he's got a beard and a robe and he's just happy. And he's turning the other cheek and let the little children. And, and it's great. And we love that. But those both are caricatures, like God's this grumpy guy and Jesus is just happy, smiling, friendly neighbor next door. But God's anger, when you read this passage where it says God is slow to anger, God's anger is a real challenge for some people. The most egregious example of this is a guy by the name of Richard Dawkins. And if you, if you like reading books, you can read his book called The God Delusion, which may tell you a little bit about his conclusions about God. He writes this quote in the book, The God Delusion, that the God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all of fiction. Of course, he's categorizing it at fiction, as fiction. He says that God is jealous and proud of it. He's petty. He's unjust. He's unforgiving. He's a control freak. He's vindictive. He's bloodthirsty. He's an ethnic cleanser. He's genocidal. He's pestilential, which I don't even know what that means, but it sounds bad. He's megalomaniacal. I had to look up how to pronounce that. He's sadomasochistic. He's capricious, and he's malevolent, and he's a bully. Now, I don't agree with Dawkins here, but he, and, and the words are a little polarizing, but he represents the way some people feel about when you crack open the Old Testament and you read some of these passages in the book of Exodus and the book of Joshua. And I don't want that God, and so how can I avoid that God and find Jesus? How, how, how do I do that? And usually there's two typical responses from Christians. Some Christians kind of just downplay that. They're, they just say, we just don't spend much time in the Old Testament. Let's just stay away from the Hebrew Bible. Let's just close that. Why don't we focus on the Gospels? Just read the red letters. That's the guy we like. That's the one we want to focus on. That's what some Christians do. But people aren't dumb. They're not dumb. You've heard Psalm 23 a million times, and it sounds wonderful. Oh, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Look at this guy. He's wonderful. And we Christians like to focus on, well, let's focus on that representation of the God of the Old Testament. But people aren't dumb. They can read the rest of the story. In fact, if you go on later in the book of Psalms, Psalm 69, here's the same guy who wrote Psalm 23, writes, pour out your wrath on them. This is a guy who's supposed to be after God's own heart. Pour out your wrath on them. Let your fierce anger overtake take them. People aren't dumb. They're not going to be like, wait a second. All right. So I'll just focus on the nice verses. Uh, Something about that seems odd. Another thing that a lot of people do, a lot of Christians do, and you've run into them, is they really lean into the anger of God. (laughs) I've had so many people when I say, oh God, you know, he's a God of love. He's got a grace. They're like, well, don't forget the wrath. And I'm like, "Mm, I think that says more about you than it does about God. Like we, I didn't realize that God has wrath, but maybe calm down a little bit. And you've interacted with these people. These are the people that you might see carrying a sign on a street corner. Or every once in a while, you'll drive by a church that has a church sign that just seems a little bit too angry. I'm not sure that I like that representation, but there are some Christians who see judgment in every natural disaster. God's mad at the same people that they're mad. And I think it's kind of like the Bible, treating the Bible like a Rorschach.
Rorschach test, like the inkblot test, you know, where it says more about them and their personality than it actually does about God, like walking around judgment, doom. And every time there's an earthquake or a hurricane, they're like, well, you know, Florida must have done something terrible to deserve that hurricane. And that's probably true. But it doesn't mean that that's just specifically God's judgment. And maybe maybe that's true, but I don't know what God's doing. I don't get I don't get to see into his mind. And so for me to say, oh, that entire country must have made God mad. I don't know. That just seems a little too much for me. So leaning into it and downplaying it don't seem like good options. So so what do we do? Is God more Bobby Knight? Do you guys remember Bobby Knight? Coach the Indiana would throw a chair onto the court when he didn't like a call. Well, that just happened once, but it was a pretty big deal for a coach to do that. Choking a player. I mean, is God like Bobby Knight where you just have to walk on eggshells and you're never sure what he's going to do and he might strike you dead at any moment? Or is God more like Mr. Rogers with a beard and a robe and he's just friendly, little children, smiling, daisies, flowers, butterflies? Which representation of God is right? Because it feels like people tend to run to one of those two extremes. Here's what I'm going to do. Here's what we will do. We're going to look at two points of reference about God's anger, and I want to point out that his anger is not what you think it is. And I think that's going to be important. And then we're going to talk about what do we do with that. It's a reality. God says, hey, here's who I am. I'm gracious and compassionate, but I also have anger, and I want you to know that. How do we respond to that aspect of his character? It's kind of easy to know what to do with grace and compassion. We feel pretty good because God doesn't always hold our sins against us. But what do we do with anger? How do we as human beings living in the world respond to this idea of God's anger? Number one, God is good at anger. God is good at anger. I, uh, I didn't think I liked Brussels sprouts growing up. Have you ever had Brussels sprouts? Amen. Yeah, some of you are cheering. That's very interesting. Um, have you ever had Brussels sprouts out of a bag frozen and heated up in a microwave? Yeah, those are the same thing. So I didn't think I liked Brussels sprouts. I ate a Brussels sprout, and I'm like, well, I've tried it. I've tested it. I've judged it. It is not good. I don't think I want to eat Brussels sprouts anymore for the rest of my life. And one time we were at a restaurant with some friends, and they had ordered Brussels sprouts as an appetizer. And I'm like, what are you? What is wrong with you? Why would somebody pay to do that to themselves? You're going to eat that? I've had those. They're terrible. And they said, no, 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 you got to try this. And I'm like, well, fine, whatever. I'm a sucker for peer pressure. So I try one of them. <gasps> what? These are Brussels sprouts? The thing that was warmed up in a microwave, steamed in a bag, that's Brussels sprouts. But then these things that were brought to our table as an appetizer are also Brussels sprouts? I love Brussels sprouts. I just hadn't had them the way the good Lord intended them to be eaten <laughs> with lots of grease and butter and salt. <laughs> I think I like grease and butter and salt, actually, but any vehicle for it is, is okay with me. I didn't realize I actually do like Brussels sprouts. See, we tend to read and react to the concept of anger in the way that we've experienced it and felt it ourselves. And we have, we've had steamed microwaved anger. <laughs> That's what we've experienced. We've had someone, a boss or a parent or a, a, a coworker get mad at us and, and we didn't know what to do and we didn't know how to respond and we felt like it was unjust and we didn't know how to react to it. That's the anger we've had. But we haven't, we read that anger and we impose it on God. But God is actually very skilled at being angry. See, humans are bad at it. Humans are bad at anger. 99.9%, and I did the, the math, I did all the geometry and calculus that needed to be done. 99.9% .9 of the time that humans get angry, it's not good. It's not good. The wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God, James says in James 1.20. 
I actually did a quick, uh, you, did, you, you can search Google for the news, just specifically the news. You don't have to just search the entire global you know, resource of knowledge. You can search the news. And so I searched Google News for the word rage. Does anybody want to guess what the number one category of human rage, what, so, what, where it happened? Maybe, maybe we should say location. Where did it happen? Road rage. And within the last 24 hours, there had been these dozens and dozens of incidents where people were arrested or, or sentenced or prosecuted or uh, uh, imprisoned because of something they had done as a result of road rage. It wasn't like it went back years. This was in the last 24 hours. There's a lot of road rage, right? Some of you are like, mm, yeah, I felt that. <laughs> felt that in construction. Do you know what the second most common location for human rage was, according to the news? Ooh, that would be a good one. No. You're, well, that would also. Mm, that's another sermon. School board meetings. School board meetings was the second most common references to rage because it's so bad. Rage. Human rage is always bad. It's just never, it's never good. And we live in this culture of outrage. And this isn't in my notes, but I read this this week and it blew my mind. Those of you that love Facebook and Facebook's good for so many things. But the algorithm of Facebook, if somebody responds to Facebook with an angry face, it shoots that post up to the top of the algorithm. If somebody responds with a love or a, a, a heart or a thumbs up stays the same. Anger shoots up to the top. Why? Because anger gets people wound up. That's human anger. But we cannot take human anger and project it on God because God is good at anger. I was thinking back to the times that I've been mad at my kids, both of them. I was thinking about the two times that that's happened. And... Um, <laughs> It's not true? Oh, interesting. You guys know. In fact, one happened last week, and I, I don't even like to admit that I get mad. I had interpreted the words and the actions of one of my children in, in a wrong way. I mean, you know, I had just looked at what they had done, and I had assumed some motives, and I got angry. Why would you do that? Why would you act like that? I raised you differently than that. And then... Even though I've got this anger momentum built up, it begins to dawn on the rational part of my brain that I don't have the whole story. And the rational part of my brain being Kareem telling me, you don't have the whole story. And I'm trying to like slow the train down. And it's so hard once you've gone down that road, it's so hard to stop that anger train. Human anger never works out well. And so we can't project that on God. My anger is confused. God's anger is clear. He sees the whole picture. My anger is self-centered. It's almost always about ego. God's anger is pure. My anger is destructive. God's anger is redemptive. My anger is quick. God's anger is slow. God is good at being angry. Be careful about projecting your human limitations on God's anger. The second thing, the second perspective we need to have is this, is that God's anger is good. God's good at being angry. He's skilled at it. He doesn't get angry about the wrong things for the wrong reason at the wrong time, and he doesn't have anger momentum, but his anger is also good. Several years ago, when our oldest, Taya, was probably in, I don't know, third or fourth grade, it was Valentine's Day, and you know, at school, you have to have, you got to bring a gift for everybody, a little package of candy and a little something or other for everybody, and finances were a little, little tight, and so we were trying to think of what's a creative solution that we can get something for everybody in class that nobody's going to be allergic to, because everybody's allergic to everything in classes, and so we had the genius idea, what if we went and got a big package of water? 
water and got pink lemonade packets and we bought ribbon and we just spent time, you know, tying up each packet with a pink lemonade, tied to a little ribbon, nice little note. And that would be cool. It's different. It's not just the normal, typical Marvel Skittles or whatever you're paying money for at Target. I thought that would be new. I thought that would be different. And so I helped Taya carry the stuff into her class. You know, we set it down and Taya comes home and she's sad. She's crying. I'm like, what? What happened? And she said she handed out these little Valentine's gifts that we had so carefully, lovingly made, and the kids laughed and threw them in the trash. Probably not all of them, but many of the kids. So this is probably 10 years ago. I'm still mad at those kids. (laughs) I'm still mad at them. They're in college now. That is a good anger, an anger that protects, an anger that that wants to, to, to comfort, an anger that gets upset at an injustice. That is a good anger. You cannot be a good human if you do not get angry at evil. Every time there's another school shooting or mass shooting, for about 20 seconds, our entire nation is sad and angry about that. And then it gets politicized and it's just a bunch of garbage and people reacting in terrible ways. But for about 20 seconds, people are angry for the right reasons. We are all on the same page for this short period of time and then we get sabotaged by other interests. It's right to be angry at injustice. If you look a little earlier in Exodus, in Exodus chapter 22, verse 22, he says, Do not take advantage of the widow. Do not take advantage of the fatherless. If you do, they will cry out to me. I will certainly hear their cry. My anger will be aroused. And this is good. You want God to be angry at this. And listen to what he says. He says, I will kill you with the sword. You're going to take advantage of the fatherless and widows. I'm going to make your family fatherless and widowed. And you might be like, ooh, God, that's a little extreme. Does that not reveal the heart of God, anger at injustice? Is that not reveal that God is good, that he gets angry and his anger is good? You want a God who looks at the mess that we have in the world and gets angry because there's so much terrible injustice that happens to people. You want that. It's a moral imperative to be angry at injustice. Let me take this a step further. You want people to be angry with you when you introduce harm and destruction into your life and the life of your family. You may not want it in the moment, but you want to be surrounded by people that will get in your face and that will say, I'm so upset at the way that you're treating your family, at the way that you're treating your kids. I'm so upset that you would, you would even think of engaging in that sin that will cause so much harm and destruction. You want people who will be angry with you because anger at the right things is a good thing. It's something that we should experience and it's something that we should thank God for. God's anger is a necessary reflection of his love. And in fact, it's so funny because we talk about this caricature of anger, but, but Jesus got angry too. They don't do flannel gra- graphs anymore, probably down the hallway in the kids' program. But I don't recall a flannel graph of Jesus forming a whip and committing property damage in the temple. I don't remember that. That story was just, oh yeah, Jesus did that. Hey, he also welcomed the little children. You're like, wait, what about the whip? (laughs) Tell me that story. Jesus got angry at the injustice that was being uh, perpetrated on God's glory in the temple. Jesus got angry. I mean, Jesus, meek and mild, wouldn't hurt a fly, turn the other cheek, love the little children. Yeah, 
also forms a whip. Now, I'm not saying any of you should do that. Don't do that. I'm just telling you it's a caricature of Jesus to say that he never got angry and God always does. In fact, most of the stories in the Old Testament are about God's love and compassion. The Old Testament covers millennia. The Gospels cover three years. It's like a, a newlywed couple. And, and not to throw any of you newlywed couples under the bus, but have you ever talked to a couple? They've been married about two minutes, and they're like, our entire marriage, we've just never argued. It's just so wonderful. And you're just like, oh, my goodness, seriously? Call me in about 30 years. It's just math. There's just more time. There's just more time to in- interact with another human being. When you read the Old Testament, you got millennia. Yes, you see more of God's wrath and his anger. It's just statistics. I don't know if you've had an experience like this, because I think we have to think about how God's anger interacts with our lives. Several winters ago, it was, uh, it was late evening, and I was driving on the highway nearby, and uh, it was one of those evenings where I hadn't realized that the weather had turned enough that the roads had gotten icy, and I'm just listening to the radio, got the radio cranked, I'm just driving like, you know, not a care in the world, and I didn't realize that the, the road underneath my tires had just completely gotten icy until I tried to turn the steering wheel and nothing happened. Have you ever had that happen? It's like panic, and you tried to turn it more as if that's going to help, nothing happens, and then you hit a dry patch, and all of a sudden your car like whips around. You have anybody ever? Just me? Okay. All right. So I, I just have this vivid memory, and I'm not sure how accurate it is, but my car began spinning around. That part was accurate. And I remember careening up close to the, the concrete median. And I'm sure this part isn't true, but I remember having like this movie slow-mo, like the concrete median's real close, and my car just gets real close to it and then whips the other way. Anyway, kept spinning, kept turning, and ended up on the far side of the road facing the opposite direction on the shoulder. And if you've ever had something like that where... Like, you, you sit there for a minute and you assess, okay, nothing bad happened. I didn't, I didn't hit anybody. I didn't hit anything. I didn't fly off and over a pass. I didn't hit an embankment. There was no other cars on the road. How in the world is that possible? And you just sit there for a moment and you're thinking about the big existential questions of life. Now, I don't know if God protected me that, I mean, I don't know what that is in terms of God's will. I'm sure God protected me, but I don't know if God was like trying to teach me a lesson or something. But what I did not take away from that incident was to say, oh, I can continue driving however I want. I didn't suffer consequences, but my conclusion was then, oh, well, then it doesn't matter what I do. What I did was put the car into gear, slowly drive home very carefully, 10 and 2, slowly pull into my driveway, slowly walk into the house, and slowly hug my wife and children because I realized that I had had a near miss with death. The conclusion, because I hadn't experienced the consequences, wasn't then that I could do whatever I wanted. Most of us do not experience God's anger. We experience God's slowness. But the conclusion should not be that we can then just do whatever we want. That's not what God's slowness is trying to teach us. We should not confuse God's patience with God's permission. Because God hasn't allowed us to suffer the full consequences of our actions should not mean that we just say, well, I guess it doesn't matter. I've done some boneheaded things in my life 
And I didn't suffer the consequences for them. Some dumb things, some dumb choices, things that should have caused more harm than they did. And God in his infinite wisdom and mercy spared me and the people around me from the extreme consequences of those choices. And there are instances and there's people's lives we can look at where God did not spare them the consequences of some of those same choices. But we shouldn't then interpret that our choices don't matter. David, the King David of the Old Testament, he was the guy who did some boneheaded things in his life. And late in his life, he composed this poem, reflecting back on all the choices he's made and all the things he's done. And this is what he says in Psalm 103, verse 8. He says, the Lord is compassionate and gracious. He is slow to anger. He's abounding in love. Does this wording sound familiar? He's reflecting on God's own words out of Exodus 34. This is what he says in verse 9. This is so cool. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our own iniquities. You are here mostly alive and mostly well. You have been spared God's anger for whatever reason, not because your life is pristine and you've never made choices deserving of wrath or anger, but because God is slow to anger. But we shouldn't presume that God will always withhold. If you keep making some of the choices that some of you make, you will have consequences to suffer because of God's goodness. Because he is a good God, because he is good at being angry, he will allow us to suffer for our choices. We shouldn't presume that we're getting away with it. We should presume that God is slow to anger. What a wonderful idea. Let's live in a way that realizes the reality of his anger, but takes into account the slowness.